0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: What the hell is post-modernism? I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I've written a feature essay on postmodernism, and I'm still not entirely sure I know what it is. I mean, I have an idea, and I can paint a general picture, but even the great postmodern philosophers don't all agree on what postmodernism even means. So it's very hard, almost impossible, to say simply and clearly what postmodernism is. Post-modernism
2: is an intellectual movement that started in the mid to late 20th century.
1: Most Americans are just saying what's going on with the nation and they really don't understand. We just throw out socialism, but there is a groundswell that came from academia. There's other
2: elements of postmodernism. One of them is that human nature is merely a social construct. Why would you think that human nature is only a social construct? Well, here's why. It's because that means you could construct it any way you want to. So depending on the topic in question, postmodernism seems to have these different starting points, and so it's very, very difficult for a lot of reasons. So what exactly is
1: postmodernism, and should we even care about it? Most of the time when you hear the word postmodernism thrown around, it's a kind of insult. It's often blamed for our post-truth era, And it's often considered a school of thought that abolished standards, denied objectivity, and even celebrated a dangerous moral relativism.
2: So you have to educate yourself about postmodernism. Okay, so here's what the postmodernists believe. They don't believe in the individual. They don't believe in dialogue. They don't believe that people of goodwill can come to consensus through the exchange of ideas.
1: Most of this is just using the term as a lazy scapegoat. And yet, there is at least some truth in these criticisms. But the important thing to know is that postmodernism, or what postmodernism is trying to say about our world, is absolutely worth knowing. Because whether we know it or not, we're living in a postmodern world.
2: All of the great postmodernism is about pluralism, pluralism, pluralism. To say, no, no, it's a mess. In fact, we want to make it more of a
1: mess.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Trump. Right. Oh my God, another plane has just hit It hit another building. Our home is perhaps the most important place in our lives, and there is a lot to manage. Let's say we get married. Okay. What if like, we have babies, right?
1: Okay, little Kylie's running around.
0: And they're at the dinner table, okay?
1: And, and you like, say, let's say Grace. Yes. I'll try and fart or burp
0: and say, who's Grace? <laughs> no! <laughs> These guys cannot catch a break. Even when the Dow jumps 416 points, s and gains 1.56% and the NASDAQ vaults 2.59%. But you know who rarely ever gets any heat? No, 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 man. man I ain't give, you, you, you're going to give it a shot. Man, you're going to give it a shot. No, a shot. I ain't giving it a shot. I ain't giving it the shot. i never done this yeah, before. I ain't never done it before either, all right? I ain't starting now. Congress. Postmodernism. Yes, I still really don't understand what postmodernism is.
1: That's why I was excited to see a new book by one of my favorite journalists, Stuart Jeffries. The book is called Everything, All the Time, Everywhere How We Became Postmodern. And it does more than offer a useful account of what postmodernism is. It also explores how it revolutionized our culture and politics in ways we hardly recognize. So I invited Jeffries onto the show to help us make sense of this boogeyman and explain why he thinks it's worth wrestling with, how we can spot its influence in our culture and politics, and the surprising connection between postmodernism and neoliberalism. Stuart Jeffries, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to say right at the top that this term, postmodernism, is an absolute nightmare to define. (laughs) And I desperately want to avoid the temptation to start this conversation off by asking you to define it. But we kind of sort of have to try in order for the rest of this conversation to make any sense, I think. So God help us. Stuart, let's see if we can start with you just giving a general summary of what postmodernism refers to, at least in your mind.
2: Okay, let's try it. I mean, the idea is, in a trite way, it's what comes after modernism. And what modernism was, was a very earnest, serious Commitment to progress, commitment to overturning the frills and furbelows of Victorian culture and early 20th century decorative culture in the arts and in architecture. So modernism is austere, lean, earnest, very male, not very together in terms of having fun. It's a funless genre, really earnest and funless and joyless, really. It's a funless-ism. And postmodernism is a rebellion against that. It's a rebellion against the idea that through cutting back and becoming leaner and fitter and meaner in terms of our architecture, in terms of our literature, in terms of any kind of art form, we can improve ourselves. We're on a path to improving ourselves as human beings, heading towards some sort of absolute of perfection. Postmodernism disdains all that. It just sort of says, that's garbage. What we're about as postmodernists is tearing up rule books to make buildings, to make art, and to make it all about expression and fun. Now, the weird thing about postmodernism is you can catch it like that. It sounds great. But also, at the same time, there's an ism looming called neoliberalism, which is a new form of capitalism, which is essentially about... Well, so it's what we're living in. We're living in a neoliberal era. And postmodernism is kind of like a cultural handmaiden for that. So this culture of fun that postmodernism proposes is what serves neoliberalism. It helps capitalism. That's why I wrote this book, really, because I wanted to pull the two together and think about how they serve each other and what they both mean and why the term postmodernism isn't dead. It's it's still with us. We are still postmodernism, I think.
1: It's very interesting. I think you mark the beginning of the postmodern era as the moment Richard Nixon removed the US dollar from the gold standard, which I think may strike a lot of people as, wait, what? What the hell does that (laughs) mean? What, What does one have to do with the other? But I think you're onto something there. So why is that for you the moment? where we pivot into this era.
2: I mean, you're right. You know, you'd have thought that postmodernism would be born in something to do with Vietnam. That might be the thing you touch on or Watergate, you know, it'd be a a disastrous war or disastrous corruption being exposed. But actually, I think it's the moment in between those two things. That means it's inflected with both of those things too. But when Nixon takes, effectively, the world economy off the gold standard, it does something really interesting. It means that, money is in free flow. It's not pegged. You know, countries like Britain, which were are running short of money, could always think, oh, we can always just get some gold. We can get rid of our dollar reserves, get gold from Fort Knox, and, you know, we'll be okay. So we enter a terrifying world in which there are no foundations. There's no foundations in the money system since then. Credit goes nuts. Credit cards have their era in the years... After that, credit explodes, borrowing explodes. We go completely mad for buying things we can't afford, and all of these things have a dimension in terms of what's happening in, in postmodern theory. So, what's happening in the White House when Nixon says we're coming off the gold standard has its reflection, I think, in what happens in uh, French theory, where people like Foucault and Bart are saying. The author is dead as a guarantor of the meaning of a sentence or the meaning of a work. You see, we're now in a democracy whereby the reader has as much power to decide what something means as the author. So the author's dead. For me, that just seems you know, simultaneous, really, with the moment of us coming off the gold standard. So the gold standard really is like a classic loss of foundations, a loss of meaning, yeah. and it's also a moment in which capital can go nuts and go and expand
1: yeah, I mean, it's almost a kind of metaphor for what happens with language and meaning, right? Yeah. Where the words we use and the reality they're intended to describe, just that relationship gets completely <laughs> severed. Yeah. It's just all made up.
2: Yeah. And the terrifying thing about that, ultimately, is that this leads to where we are now, just deep into the, uh, a post-truth world. I'm not saying Donald Trump will... Boris Johnson read Foucault and Derrida and all these French guys who deconstructed the notion of abstract truths or undermined the plausibility of objective science. But their lies, their incessant lying, are made possible really by the zeitgeist of a world in which truth no longer has the privileged status that it used to, and that meaning isn't as fixed as it used to be. It's not as tied to the real world as it used to be.
1: Well, let's get back to neoliberalism right it's interesting in this book you do engage with serious philosophers theorists like foucault and derrida and leotard but you don't seem especially interested in the philosophical basis of postmodernism which is not to say that you're not intellectually interested but the book is much more focused on neoliberalism which you think of as the kind of master paradigm of our time. Why is it for you more important to see neoliberalism as the paradigm of our moment as opposed to postmodernism?
2: I think it's because of who I am and where I grew up, you know? I just turned 60, and so I'm a child of Thatcher, who was, apart from Deng Xiaoping, the first world leader to put the ideas of neoliberalism into practice, and they involved cutting back on the welfare state the idea that there was no sense of community. Thatcher famously said, there is no such thing as society, there are just individuals and families. And she meant it. She meant that all the communal sensibilities that Britain, for example, had had since World War II, a strong welfare state, a sense of the country coming out of the war and trying to reestablish its identity with a strong state, with nationalised industries and all that, all that was torn down in my lifetime, You know, in, in, my, in my formative years. And, you know, when I was at uni, I, I, I would read sort of the ideas of neoliberal theorists, particularly Robert Nozick, philosophical theorists. I also studied economics, and the economics I was studying was Milton Friedman. It was all that kind of, there's no such thing as a free lunch. The state is fundamentally evil. And I didn't believe that. I am mean, a kind of soft labour kind of guy, and I still am despite everything. And so I'm focused on the political dimension of what this cultural change means, all the housing estates, the projects and stuff that were built when I was a kid for low-income families, they were all built under the star of modernism. They all look like, identicate, pretty much Le Corbusier-type buildings. And there's something wonderful and utopian about them which was lost in the moment of postmodernism. So the politics and the cultural moments and the philosophical issues of postmodernism for me, are very closely linked.
1: So when you're talking about neoliberalism, you're really talking about this triumph of individualism and really the erosion of the state as a meaningful actor in social life. Yeah. This is the moment where we just become really consumers and atomized actors in the world. And the role of the state is to basically get out of the way and let the private sector manage our political life.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that Reagan quote. One yeah. of the, the most terrifying words you can hear, you know, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. You know, and that actually taps into a fear lots of people have got of what a big government amounts to. Everywhere, you know, not just in the States, everywhere, but particularly resonant in the States where there's a deep resentment towards Washington and deep resentment towards taxation and any kind of federal interference, I should say.
1: What's interesting is that postmodernism, I think, was intended to be subversive was this movement to challenge, as you were saying, order and authority. But I don't think people realized how thoroughly postmodern <laughs> neoliberalism is in this sense, right? Like, it's very nihilistic in the sense that it's a total amoral capitulation to market society yeah, and individualism, right?
2: Yeah. What could be more postmodern than that? Yeah, it's the ultimate irony, isn't it? and postmodernity is steeped in irony. It almost becomes its go-to sort of response to everything, which is in itself disastrous. But yeah, you know, when you come across statements like David Byrne from Talking Heads, he wrote a little catalogue essay for an exhibition about postmodernism saying this was so exciting when we started to tear up the rulebook of modernism. And it's really hard to for somebody like me to sort of think, oh, yeah, that must have been so great because you were a revolutionary because I don't think of this as a revolutionary moment. I think of it as a, a conformism to a, or an obeisance before a new sort of form of capital, a new mutant form of capitalism. And I think he probably does now as well. I mean, I'm I'm sure a lot of people who are enthusiasts for post-modernity and opposed modernism now are sort of a bit more questioning about what an appalling movement it really was, is.
1: (laughs) I should stop saying was because I mean is. I think a lot of people realize that, (laughs) yeah, you know, deconstructing things is fun, but it turns out that building things is also just as important and very difficult. Right,
2: exactly. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Do you feel like the emancipatory potential of postmodern thought was just completely squandered. That really was a moment where that subversiveness could have translated to something genuinely revolutionary. But instead, I guess instead, it just sort of became another trick of capital. Yeah. It got co opted. It got co opted by market society, by consumer society, and it lost any real political potential.
2: Absolutely. I mean, if you read Lyotard, particularly if you read Deleuze, too. Both of them are quite radical thinkers, and they've got revolutionary, kind of revolutionary products. I mean, both of them are born of the disappointment of the failure of the student rebellions in 68 in Paris. You know, So they're kind of later ideas, which are essentially postmodern, are filled with mourning for the lost revolution. So they're not Marxist revolutionaries anymore. So you have Deleuze thinking about desire as a liberator. Forget about socialist organisation, forget about trade unions and forget about barricades. It's desire that is truly revolutionary. And, it, you know, that seems an incredibly naive thing to say now, because you think of how desire, in many different ways, sexual, desire for products, desire for, you know, material titillation that is actually utterly conformist and something that our desires are manufactured for us and sold back to us. And desire is actually a tool for capitalism. And then you have people like Leotard, who writes very subversively about science is an objective. You know, just if you think about it, all the really interesting scientific advances, particularly in the 20th century, come about because of stuff like wars. So necessity is the mother of invention, and wars and, and a desire for conquest, they are the things that project us forward. Yeah. So scientific endeavor isn't a, an objective quest for truth, it's a, often a money-based sort of pursuit of something that's going to keep the shareholders happy. What a subversive thought that is! I mean, I'm not sure it's true, but it's, quite a, it's undeniably a revolutionary thought. Think about science as something that's just grubby as anything else. Do you think that the postmodern
1: movement was made possible by neoliberalism, or that Perhaps postmodernism was just a diagnosis of the world neoliberalism built.
2: Well, I mean, it's, it, the neoliberalism seems to be just building the stuff that neoliberalism wants. Just, you know, in architecture, that's clearly what seems to happen. There. But, you know, yeah, I think postmodernism, you could see it as an intellectual critique of neoliberalism in a way, because neoliberalism's foundational principle is the individual is king, you know, queen. What's wrong is society. And postmodernism, if you read a lot of postmodern theory, it tells you this. It tells you that there is no such thing as the individual, really, that these notions of self and individuals can easily be exploded or actually artefact of kind of economic thinking, which is very naive. So postmodern theory could be used, could or could have been used to blow up neoliberalism. Didn't really happen as far as I can tell though, you know.
1: Yeah, capitalism wins again, huh?
2: I think so. I mean, I'm afraid so. It always seems to win.
1: Undefeated. <laughs> so there's no truth, and everything is relative. Is that actually a fair summary of postmodernism? That's after the break. Support for the Great area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger, or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. I guess, you know, in popular culture and in American public discourse, when the term postmodernism comes up, it's usually a kind of epithet, right? It's usually an argument that someone is rejecting the idea of truth as such. Yeah, It's identified with a kind of moral relativism, right? Nothing is true. Everything is permitted or possible. I mean, is that a caricature for you? Or do you think that's actually an accurate assessment of the deconstructive project that was postmodern theory?
2: I don't know. I think there are postmodern theorists, and I'm particularly thinking of Richard Rorty in this. He was kind of a postmodernist yeah, who wrote a lot about how we need to stop believing in progress. We need to appreciate the contingency of the world. We need to steep ourselves in irony and we need to start thinking about solidarity and all of those things rather than metaphysical projects of progress. So all that's there, which is Classic postmodernism. But it was interesting you touched on moral relativism because even he will say this, and this is almost like a logical point there's no such person as a moral relativist because you don't just believe that your moral values that you hold are just as good as anybody else's. You can never believe that, can you? I mean, it seems to be absurd. So nobody's really a relativist. There may be, I don't know, competitions in terms of rhetorical arguments about, you know, you take different rhetorical positions in different arguments and they might be worthy of respect and you may not be converging on the truth in some matters, I suppose. But the idea of moral debate is being pursued by people who don't really believe what they believe is more true than the person they're opposing. That's insane. It's like saying that in the Roe versus Wade stuff, you know, the people who have called themselves pro-life, you know, if they're moral relativists, they've just got opinions and they're just as strong and as defensible as the people they're opposing. That can't be right, can it? It can't be right that morality is like that. Yeah. So what I'm saying is postmodernity may lead to that, but it's a nonsense that I think the most intelligent postmodern critics have balked at.
1: Do you feel like postmodern politics is inherently conservative in the sense that it really is hyper individualistic?
2: I think so, but then the left has very often, certainly in my country, the left has accommodated itself, or did accommodate itself, to a world in which neoliberalism was rampant by copying, in a watered-down form, a lot of the tricks of, you know, when Blair came to power in the UK, for example, he was essentially a Thatcherite in that he, or rather he knew he lived in a neoliberal world and his options for changing it were limited, and his commitment to actually you know, for the old styles of communal yeah. socialist practice was diminished, and don't the left ever really recovered from it. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is conservative, it is conservative postmodernism.
1: Well, this is probably why I enjoyed your book so much. It, it did connect these dots for me, which I had never connected before, and I don't know why, because postmodernism and neoliberalism, I mean, these are, at least in my mind, separate isms until now that I've thought about, but I never really connected in any coherent way. But reading your book and talking to you now, for me, the main symptom of postmodern politics is this idea that politics is a personal issue, that politics is a space for self-expression. Because what else are we supposed to do when we don't have any (laughs) grand ideologies to believe in or any world historical projects to pursue, right? Yeah, We're just individual actors floating in space with no real connective tissue. And so, Politics becomes this arena for affirming our personal individual identity. And that's not altogether bad, but it also undermines the basis of a genuinely collective project. And that's kind of what politics is supposed to be, right? This tension is problematic.
2: Yeah, I feel a nostalgia for a, a collective society that probably didn't exist all that much in my lifetime, but I was sort of stamped with it. You know, it felt like. Oh, that's what we should be like. You should just be working towards noble objectives that help society as a whole. And that seems like an incredibly naive thing to say now. And much more likely that one conceives politics in the way that one conceives shopping. I don't mean to sound trite about that, but I think we do now think of, you know, politics in the same way as we think of desire satisfaction. What can this guy do for me? What is he going to do to lower my taxes? Yeah. It's all that, and it's not about anything grander than yourself, and how petty and sad that seems by comparison with a more nobler aspiration. Or maybe I'm just utterly nostalgic and naive. Maybe I am, but I still think that vision is something worth holding on to.
1: Yeah, I do think you're right. The culture of neoliberalism, the incentive structure it produces, does reduce everything to individual cost-benefit calculations. <laughs> It destroys any meaningful vision of citizenship and leaves us with really nothing but consumption and status, really. Yeah. And that's a moral dead end, a political dead end.
2: It's worth tracking back to where the roots of neoliberalism are, because they come from a place which sees the world as divided between fascism and communism two forms of purportedly collective endeavor, which were more or less toxic. And so the skepticism for government. And the scepticism for collective effort. And it makes sense in a way, I guess. And it makes sense for the idea that what we should have as the centre of politics is the satisfaction of individual desires. Yeah. It should be grounded on the economic satisfactions individual families rather than a people because the notion of any form of collective has become toxic and you can see why you know a lot of the theorists who are writing about this you know were viennese jews who one can well understand their skepticism before uh, anything that smacks of collectivity in the wake of the third Reich or in the wake of stalinist pogroms against jews too
1: yeah you call the internet the realization of the postmodern dream or the realization of a postmodern dream yeah that's a very interesting statement what do you mean
2: Well, I got really wound up with the idea that postmodernism is dead and that it died at a specific moment. The idea is that it died with the Twin Towers. So as soon as the Twin Towers came down, we were shocked back from this fun world of irony and frivolity that was postmodernism into the seriousness and literalism of a new culture war, i.e. the war against, you know, Islamism. And that moment was seized on by quite a few critics. There's you know, this novelist, Harry Kunzru, who wrote an interesting article in which he suggested that postmodernism was the dream of the internet. So when it was realised, as we came into the new millennium, that's when postmodernism died. You know, postmodernism was not the realisation, it was the dream. That seems to me to be a really curious way of thinking. And it's also really curious because lots of the, the iconic postmodern philosophers, I'm thinking of Jean Baudrillard, are all about Virtual worlds—they're about the unreal and the hyperreal trumping the real, you know. And so, the idea is, for me at least, is that the internet does realise a lot of the theory that, that people like Baudrillard were talking about, and that you know, postmodernism, long since thought to be dead, is actually still with us and is realised more intensively than ever. And, and that makes sense as well because we can see the internet as yielding to what it's become, which was started off as a fairly opposite countercultural, has its roots in counterculture. And diversion, and it gets co-opted into capitalism, so you know now we're in a world where a huge tech market companies taking over the world and reading our thoughts,
1: yeah, I mean that seems like a ridiculous claim, right in <laughs> retrospect that like postmodernism died with nine eleven right? I guess the idea was that we were living in this era of kind of fantasy and frivolity, yeah, and then boom, history starts up again, yeah, like there's nothing more real than buildings collapsing on top of. 3,000 bodies. Yeah. Like, okay, that's going to shake us from our virtual entertainment stupors and force everyone's attention to re-engage with the world again. But boy, that didn't last very long, did it?
2: It really didn't. I mean, it's that kind of era where the virtual worlds are starting to become places where we increasingly live. So the idea that, you know, postmodernity was about those kind of dreams and when they are realized, it ends. It seems curious, you know. It's bizarre. But, you know, there are lots and lots of essays. It's customary now to say that postmodernism is dead. And it is, if you say, you know, postmodernism is like Thomas Pynchon's novels, it's Salman Rushdie's novels, it's a certain kind of fun architecture, you know, it's Robert Venturi, it's all that kind of stuff. If you type specific kind of works of art or specific authors and all that kind of stuff, then, yeah, you know, of course, literature's moved on and architecture has moved on and changed, but that just doesn't mean that the forces that made postmodernity cultural dominant have also moved on.
1: Well, uh, holding for a minute on this idea that the internet is a kind of post-modern dream, I just want it to be as clear as possible for anyone listening, Yes, is the thing that makes the internet so postmodern is that it does allow the individual to live a very virtual mediated life, it allows the individual to kind of curate their world and the reality in ways that they deem desirable. It overwhelms us with choices and content and glittering diversion. It sends us further and further into the hole that is our little individual existence and at the same time disconnects us from real people in the real world.
2: Yeah, I think all of that is absolutely true. But I also think the dream we were sold and the dreams a lot of people bought into in the early years, and perhaps even now, was that it's a place of fulfilment. Cyberspace or virtual worlds—a place of place of fulfilment where you can become something other than you are. That's the sort of liberation that people like Deleuze are on about. You know, they're talking about desire is subversive. So if you can abandon your identity, this identity which is dragging you down—say, you're a really boring person, you're in a boring job—and then online you can become something utterly other. You know, I remember when Second Life first came out, thinking this could be kind of liberatory.
1: So you're talking about the almost 20-year-old online platform or game where people create digital avatars and live in this shared virtual world.
2: And a lot of people who were interviewed who had avatars on Second Life would talk about they could cross-dress and they could become animals and they could become sexually expressive and they could live out fantasies, you know, which is, that was the dream.
1: But there's also a kind of deception here. You write in the book, the digital world enables us to access everything immediately, all the time, everywhere, and at the same time establishes a new surveillance society that works differently, yet is more elegantly totalitarian and oppressive than anything described by Orwell. And this is a kind of feature of the postmodern world where we have this illusion of being truly free agents in the world, but we're actually being manipulated and pushed and pulled and twisted in ways that are more powerful, but also very difficult to discern.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this is an old Frankfurt School thing. We've come to desire our own domination, which is, why the desire utopians like Deleuze are wrong because they think desire is necessarily subversive. It turns out desire has been used to make us more conformist. It actually makes us feel like we're free and feel like we're getting what we want, but actually not realizing that a lot of the time our desires are manufactured and we're getting what other people want us to want in order that the amoral virus that is capitalism thrives. Yeah, God, what a grim analysis, but I think I, I don't think it's wrong, you know, I, I think it's really on the money for where we are. And the thing about Orwell was that Big Brother was a hostile, oppressive force. The idea is now that instead of Big Brother out there, Big Brother's in here, you know, we're all Big Brothers, we're all monitoring ourselves, we're all ponying up our data freely, we're not being forced to do it, we're doing it freely, and it's being used to target us and to get money from us and keep the system going.
1: The culture we live in today is confusing and vacuous. It's like one big Seinfeldian show about nothing. Does that mean we've all become postmodern? That's coming up after one last break.
0: Support for this show comes from Slack. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: I want to talk a little bit about how this stuff kind of plays out in the culture, or infects the culture, to use a very loaded term. Yeah. I mean, I guess when criticism one could level against the book is that you look at it. And I had this experience when I first got your book, I opened it up and I looked at the table of contents and I think to myself, well, okay, this is strange. This feels like a catalog of seemingly unrelated case studies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of bewildering. And then I started reading it and I thought, well, maybe that's the point. One of the marks of the postmodern era is precisely this quality that it disorients and subdues by overwhelming us with choices and products and lifestyles and entertainments, right? Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about culture and, and art, particularly popular art, like one way we've all become postmoderns, like originally postmodern art was this kind of like vanguard thing, yeah. this space for artists Like David Bowie, who you talk about in the book, Bowie was constantly shape-shifting and disappearing behind avatars and virtual symbols. Yeah. And now we're all kind of doing that. We're all in more than the same way. We're all playing ourselves online, on social media, and even in our actual lives. Yeah. Like all the way down. Postmodern art, it really was, in your words, like artifice all the way down. And when Bowie did it, it was cool. And at least plausibly some kind of artistic statement about self-experimentation. But by the time we get to like Seinfeld, which Seinfeld's like my favorite sitcom ever, I love it. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing there, man. Like it really <laughs> is. That's right. I mean, the show's like, that's the tagline of the show, right? There's like a show about nothing. It's like a culture feasting on its own emptiness in like an ironic
2: way. Yeah, absolutely. I get all that and I really agree with it. But one thing you're talking about is this sort of explosion in stuff, how confusing it is to navigate yourself through all the forms of culture and stuff that's going on, which is tiring and exhausting. But if there was an evil God behind it, it was like you're saying, this is intended to bewilder you. And there's no intention. There's no God behind all this. This isn't what's happening. But what it made me think about is when John Milton was alive back in the 17th century, he could read, I think he had read every published book. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine being able to sort of master a culture. The idea that you could expose yourself to all the movies, all the, all the books, all the, all the music, and be steeped in it is kind of absurd. In a way, you know, I mean, there has been a massive soaring in the rate of production of cultural products since we came off the gold standard. That's why the art market is so screwy. It's because the one safe investment in all this quicksand of investments has been the art market. It's been a really good place to put, you know, your megabucks into. And that's one reason why, Jeff Koons is the richest artist in the world because he makes product that serves that ambition.
1: Why is Grand Theft Auto in a book about postmodernism? What the hell is postmodern about Grand Theft Auto?
2: Well, for me, it was made by these guys in Dundee in Scotland. So Dundee is this dismal Scottish city which is trying to reinvent itself. And there, these three computer nerds, they just make this fantastic vision of, you know, it's a, a simulacrum. A Baudrillardian simulacrum of L.A. and of other cities, too. So it is the virtual world they're creating. And it's a virtual world in which, really interestingly, I think, everybody's at work. And this is the interesting thing about the video game boom, which we haven't really talked about, which is that what you're doing in playing video games very often is working. You're going through tasks. In Grand Theft also very often, to ascend the mob ladder. You whack somebody, you perform a certain tasks. you take a, you know something to a head guy, whatever. So it's work, it's a simulation, it's, it's like work. And so actually it reinforces the values of capitalism. So one, it's a simulation, it's a postmodern simulation, and two, it's just reinforcing the neoliberal order. You think you're entering a fantasy world where you can shoot hookers and all this kind of appalling stuff, but actually what you're doing most of all is becoming another cog in the machine so you know fantastic
1: yeah i guess for me it just strikes me as a kind of empty diversion you know i mean you have a bit in the book on quentin tarantino (laughs) yeah yeah you know which stings a little bit for me because i've enjoyed the hell out of his films yeah
2: yeah same here
1: i still do uh they're great but my god are they postmodern in some of the worst ways that we're talking about here you know there's like an enormous amount of wit and intelligence in these films, in these stories, and absolutely nothing underneath it. There's no real compass. There's no metaphysics. There's no politics. It's just astonishing cynicism and a truly mesmerizing style. Boy, that seems postmodern.
2: I mean I feel exactly the same way when Pulp Fiction came out when it saw it you know, a few times loved it so much and then you know, there's this big article in The Guardian by this guy James Wood who now writes for The New Yorker and a professor at Harvard saying this has no moral compass it's just the most execrable awful thing and I was furious and in a way he's right but Samuel L. Jackson he was quite a quite problematic character particularly you know for African Americans and John Travolta are always killing or they're consuming. And that's the truth of the whole film. It's a kind of neoliberal thing where everybody is consuming stuff all the time. And that's such a weird thing to realise. But once you get those sort of strange keys to the film and you realise, is there any moral centre in it? What kind of moral universe is Quentin Tarantino advocating for here? It's kind of a terrifying film to watch again and again, you know? Yeah. I, Even though I love it. I love it. I still love it. i can still think about scenes in it, you know?
1: I've watched it a hundred times and I'll you know, watch it a hundred more. And I don't have this kind of pretentious view that every piece of art has to be in service of some political project. Right. But it does say something interesting about this period that our greatest artists mm. are using their enormous talent to sort of produce these products that are extremely entertaining, but sort of morally vacuous. Yeah, And that's not a
2: crime in and of itself, but it is a symptom. It's quite good that we get caught up in it because if we were just on our Olympian heights, again, like the old Frankfurt School, you know, you're in this this lovely hotel looking down on the sufferings of the world and you're not corrupted. That's kind of awful politics, I think. If you have no sense of what it is to be corrupted or you're not part of the same sort of degradations and struggles that everybody else is, then you're not really going to engage politically, I don't think. That was the problem of the Frankfurt School for me because they're keeping their hands clean and People like you and me, with all due respect, you know, we don't get to do that. We get to go and see Quentin Tarantino movies and feel bad about ourselves for liking them, you know. Yeah. I don't even feel bad about myself
1: for liking them. Oh, okay. fine, Good. You know, I just say, hey, man, look, I'm not going to follow my own sword here. Yeah, I don't know. It, some of this stuff makes me think about one of my kind of hobby forces has been just a, a relentless critique of boomers.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Boomer art and boomer culture, at least in our period. And how kind of you have this weird arc where the countercultural movement of the 60s failed. Yeah. And then you have people who were hippies 20 years later selling out and rebranding consumerism (laughs) as cool and, and hip, basically abandoning politics, real politics, in the sense that you and I are talking about it. And you're pretty tough on Steve Jobs here as sort of the face of that, where you say he was selling conformity, masquerading as personal liberation. Can you say a bit about that?
2: I mean, all those guys, you know, you're right, all those guys that seem to be these benign new leaders, these largely boomer leaders, Ben and Jerry, do a lot of interesting policies about Israel. And uh, yes, Steve Jobs, they all came out of countercultural impulses. So in a way, postmodernism, in terms of French theory, it was all about people who were mourning the loss of the revolution. What emerged in France after the revolution failed there really was a kind of embrace of a new form of managerial capitalism, which was nicer and sweeter. And and, and you can see that's how a lot of stuff in Cupertino and all those tech companies try to behave that way. It's supposed to be a much kinder form of capitalism. But again, it's it's the capitalism we've been talking about before, really, which is the one that seems to give you what you want and seems to make the old hierarchies irrelevant, but imposes a kind of self-critique, conformity on everybody within that company.
1: Yeah. I mean, does all this stuff really help us get what we want or does it condition us to want certain things and then allows us to pursue those things
2: i I don't know if if this has happened to you but it's happening increasingly to me i was in this department store in berlin and i picked up these glasses easy peasy parisian eyeglasses so i picked them up i was looking at them i put them down a week later today i was playing words with friends or something and jump up came some ads for easy peasy glasses. Yeah. And I don't know if they're connected, but right. it wouldn't surprise me if, if that was connected. And it makes you almost become utterly paranoid about and believing sort of things without cause and effect can really happen. You know, you know, imbue the world, the neoliberal world as a spooky world, you know.
1: But do you feel like all this digital tech, I guess, exemplified by the smartphone has turned us all into instruments? I mean, they give us this illusion of creative activity, but is it really just an illusion?
2: Well, it's certainly a different form of creativity, and it? it's not one that you know. I always lament, and this again, maybe nostalgia. Just sitting on the tube, watching, you know, nobody's reading anymore. Nobody's reading. There's a lot of Candy Crush out there, and that's kind of distressing and disturbing to me. It didn't used to be like that, or, or maybe I'm being utopian and romantic about what the past was like. And I'm not at all saying I want to go back, but I'm, I am saying there are things that I liked about the past that we could usefully take and use to inspire us. And one of them is, you know, collectivism and detaching from other people trying to sell us stuff all the time, you know.
1: My sense reading your book is that you really do think some of these postmodern thinkers were reckless in their eagerness to deconstruct values, deconstruct institutions, question the foundations of really everything, even if they may have actually been correct about a lot of things. Do you think that they were irresponsible? that that was a very dangerous game to play.
2: I think it was, it, it, it was, but it's also maybe understandable why they did all that, why they took on truth as this purported tyranny. But, you know, politically, a lot of them turn out to be either vacuous or dubious. I mean, Baudrillard's politics, I wouldn't trust him for a moment with any kind of political office. Foucault, you know, famously came out in favor of the Ayatollahs. So I think that a lot of these guys, particularly the French guys, of course, Marxism was the big sort of thing in their lives. It was the symbolic father they needed to kill. And then it failed. And they failed to kill him. That's right, because Marty's back, baby, you know, and he's still kicking around. Right. I've always gone back and forth on
1: whether postmodernism was a cause of some of this disorder. People are always complaining about it, whether or not it was simply diagnosing a world that had already been broken and shattered. And I think it's more the latter than the former, but I don't know. It may be in some ways... It feels like a capitulation to the world neoliberalism built. Yeah. Which is kind of your view of it. And there seems to be a lot of truth in that.
2: I mean, I kind of thought at the outset, I was thinking about how maybe postmodernism is, was a revolutionary impulse and it was a good one. It had, it had some interesting, perhaps even, you know, redeeming qualities to it. Yeah. But they didn't survive long. You know, David Foster Wallace writes about irony being a really useful emergency weapon but when it becomes ubiquitous then it's just hopeless then it loses any subversive edge and that seems to be true also postmodernism once it takes center stage any subversive potential that it has becomes lost
1: that's interesting could you maybe say a bit more about that i mean it's something you do in the book is make a sort of plea for earnestness and i'll just quote you you say that we need in our culture not more irony and wit but more thoughtfulness and kindness once irony was a rebel yell now it is spiritually corrupting the voice of the damned of neoliberalism. What do you mean?
2: Yeah. I got hauled over the coals for saying that. I remember there's a review, I think, in The Nation where they said, he's just saying be nice to each other. I am partly saying that, but I'm also sort of saying that the constant posture of irony corrupts both parties the person who's being ironic and the person who's on the receiving end of the irony because it no longer has a subversive dimension. It's just a sneering and a belittling of a person. And the wit that postmodernism became, you know, becomes empty and boring. It doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't help. It's also, that, I mean, you know, we're having this conversation, but postmodernism means nothing to most people. I think I quote this in the book, the postmodern episode of The Simpsons where... Moe does a makeover of his bar so it gets a, you know, groovy hipster crowd and there's this groovy hipster crowd in there and, and like, Lenny and Carl and Homer turn up and he's like, what the hell is this? And he goes...
1: It's Po Moe. Postmodern. Yeah, all right, weird for the sake of weird. Oh!
2: And they understand implicitly what postmodernism is. So that's what postmodernism is and that's probably the better definition of what postmodernism is.
1: Do you have any sense at all of what might snap the culture out of this? I don't know what would come next, but I mean, we were talking earlier about 2001, one, nine eleven. That was the end of, of postmodernism, but it really wasn't. You suggest in the book that, well, maybe the 2008 financial crisis right. was the end of postmodernism. You know, Material reality was going to bear down on all of us and force a re-engagement with the world again. But you don't think that happened, right? I mean, it it just keeps humming along, right? There was a momentary lapse, perhaps, but we're right back on the postmodern bus, no?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I remember writing all these hopeful articles about Das Kapital was selling incredibly well and all these Marxists, some of the universities and stuff were taking off and Slavoj Zizek was writing books, you know, we're back, baby, you know, all that kind of stuff. And nah, not really, it didn't really happen. We just went back to the same old, same old. Like here now in London, right now, the idea that this corrupt, lying, post truth prime minister has been brought down by his own web of lies and corruption and his lack of moral seriousness and his lack of engagement with, you know, serious engagement with the political issues. And the idea, the hope is that this will take us back to an era of seriousness and of considered culture where we don't act as individuals, we aren't beguiled by. These crazy, sort of pseudo-charismatic leaders like Trump and, and Johnson. I don't see that happening. I have no positive thoughts about how any of these things are going to play out, really. Which is very postmodernist to me, because that's the one thing that postmodernists always do. They always sort of take refuge in no future, you know, no progress, no hope. But I do really not feel, and I, had a huge, I used to have huge rows with my friends about this, About progress as a thing in politics seems to me something that you can hope for, but... My God, you don't expect it to be realized. Do
1: you think Donald Trump is almost the most perfect and maybe final expression of postmodernism? (laughs) I'm dead serious.
2: I hope you're right. Final is the word I'm hanging on to there.
1: (laughs) I may be reaching a bit there, but certainly perfect.
2: Yeah, he is. Absolutely. I mean, some of the things he said are just the utter disrespect for truth. Truth does not exist as an independent value for him. It's just what you can say. And that just... How many years we into the Biden administration? Nearly two, isn't it? I mean, just I've still not got over the fact that he said this sort of stuff and he's still saying this stuff and he believes it. The election was rigged and the Muslims were laughing when the Twin Towers came down. He's never recanted all the toxic lies he put out because to do that would be admitting he's wrong and he's never going to do that. But that's what I'm saying. That's what makes him postmodern.
1: Yeah. His political success is not saying that. There is no truth. It is testing the hypothesis that truth isn't a relevant category anymore. Yeah. That if you can simply perform what a president is supposed to be, or if you can just simply create and truly lean into whatever hyper reality (laughs) you're living in, people will come along. It's people are watching politics. The way they watch everything else in the world now as a kind of show, as a form of entertainment. Yeah. And they're just kind of being pushed along by all kinds of wins, some seen, some unseen. But it really is a, his success does really seem to validate this idea that truth it's not a relevant category anymore. It just isn't. I don't know, when I saw Boris's downfall, I thought, well, here's a case of, you know, reality conquering bullshit.
2: Yeah, it looks like it from, yeah, but it's not. I I was out of the country and I was watching his fall. (laughs) this is the worst thing, flicking between that, as a media, entertainment, actually, and love is blind. You know, the reality show, love is blind. And really, it's not clear which is actually the better thing to watch in order to understand how our society works. Because one's about, you know, politics is entertainment and the other one is about essentially the commodification of desire of marriage that you can have a relationship with somebody you've never met really and then you meet them slightly on a reality show and you go on these film dates and then you the next shot you're walking up the aisle and you're doing it all because you know to maximize the number of viewers and stuff it seems to me that both of these hopefully explain what reality is like now and both of them are really disastrous and awful
1: why did you write this book what was it a kind of lamentation <laughs> or like I mean, obviously, you're wrestling with this thing that kind of annoys you, but you also think is important, correctly, trying to make sense of a culture that's very hard to make sense of. Or is it just an intellectually interesting project for you?
2: Initially, it's something I really didn't want to do. I was talking to publishers about writing it, and the idea was that nobody really thought very closely about postmodernism as continuing after 9-11, continuing after into the Internet age, and nobody had really drawn the political connections between neoliberalism and postmodernity. So it seemed worth doing, you know, but I didn't want to do it. I really didn't want to do it because I realised what he was going to do. For me personally, it's involved me spending a lot of time with stuff I really don't like, you know, like Art I really don't like, seeing buildings I really can't bear and reading people whose writings I kind of despise or find very hard to get through. Yeah. But it became important to me. I mean, and, and, and anyway, because it, it became important to me because it was, I'd worked for The Guardian for many, many years on the arts desk and all the time I was working there, really, it was a time of postmodernism rampant, of kind of architecture and art and pop music and literature and being postmodern. And so in a way to think about what all that was about was kind of worth doing. I say this, this isn't something Spot the Dust Jackets of a book, but this is it's like a dismal journey. It's a really dismal journey because there's no happy ending at the end of it. You know, at the end of it, I just feel like I'm walking around this city, most of which has become a postmodern city, you know, in terms of buildings, in terms of withdrawal of the city, authorities from the urban landscape, and it feels like mostly it's the battle's been lost and I can't see battle being joined again and won for the people who I'd like to see win it.
1: Yeah. And like, I don't know if there's a happy ending to this conversation, um, <laughs> but I, I suppose the best I can do is I guess first to say anyone daring enough to write a book explaining postmodernism as a hero and deserves a trophy. <laughs> so kudos to you, but on a more serious note, as difficult as this is to wade through and damn, is it difficult it's important to at least try to understand what it means to say that we're living in a postmodern world because we are, whether we know it or not, whether we have any idea what postmodernism means. And I think liberating ourselves from the emptiness (laughs) begins with seeing it clearly. So I applaud you for doing (laughs) your part, Stuart.
2: Sean, thank you so much for being so thoughtful and and considerate and kind in what you were saying. I really appreciate it. The questions are terrific.
1: Again, the book is called Everything, all the time, everywhere. How we all became postmodern. Stuart Jeffries, my friend, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you, man. Thank you.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Can we improve? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.